welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I met the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. This is the second in our podcast in the two-volume history of the Bank of Montreal, this time on the post-war history of that venerable financial institution. The title of the book is, wait for it, Whom Fortune Favors, The Bank of Montreal and the Rise of North American Finance, Volume 2, Territories of Transformation, 1945 to 2017. The author is Lawrence B. Muzio, a business historian, management consultant, and advisor to some of the most senior business executives in Canada. In October of 2018, Dr. Muzio co-founded the Long Run Initiative. The Long Run Initiative was established to bring together academics, business leaders, and policymakers to better understand and use history, as well as the analysis of historical records, to shed light on contemporary business and policy challenges. Dr. Muzio joins me today in the studio. Lawrence, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Great to be here, Greg. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, as you know, we've already gone through your volume one. Today, we're going to start with volume two, which is in every respect a very substantive volume. It, I, I do believe it stands alone as a book in its own right. Uh, but I want to start with a general question, and that's on the idea of commissioned history. What are the advantages and disadvantages of this kind of commissioned history? It depends. It depends on what the conditions are, actually. Uh, this commissioned history began life, as we mentioned in the in the last podcast, as a project under the administration of uh, Bill Down, who was the chief executive officer of the Bank of Montreal Financial Group at, at the time. So essentially, he agreed to two books, one, a popular history, and the second, a work of independent scholarship that is rare. Why? Because institutions don't like to give up control of the message, unless for a very good reason. And the good reason was we have a primordial Canadian institution, the Bank of Montreal. We need a history for our generation. So are you going to have it commissioned and before a committee essentially agreeing on certain facts, or are you going to have an academic historian take a look at it and say, you know, letter rip according to your professional judgment? So the conditions are very, very important. Those are the advantages. The other advantage is the you know, once the, uh, the the resources, the capital, etc., you know, to make sure that it is a solid scholarly contribution to history. And that's where the choice of press is important, for example, uh, but the conditions themselves are pretty key. Now, one of the things that you were given was uh, basically full access to a very rich assortment of archive documentation that was in the hands of the Bank of Montreal. I note that you conducted research in a number of other archives, including public archives. Uh, but in this volume, it was something a little different, and that was that you had amassed an enormous volume of interviews with senior executives, which you then used to help you write this history. And, you know, I want you to describe that what you think the difference is between relying on documentary history 
versus relying on interview evidence of this type. So the evidentiary base of uh, volume two is, uh, as you say, it's a mixed portfolio because uh, by necessity, right? So in the early time, so we're talking about 1945 to essentially to 2017, although there is a watershed in 1990. There are many documents that are saved as a, as a matter of course, but by the 1960s and 70s, and I think uh, I've seen this in many institutions, the documentary evidence starts to trail off. People aren't saving things anymore. There's no policy. There is a, you know, the institution gets very, very big, and there's no kind of historical records management strategy. Uh, and as a result, the archives start to dry up. They start collecting. Right. They start collecting press releases, which okay, great, that's great. But the what we want to see is the is the um, is the trajectory of decision making. What 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 was the actual what were the actual issues? This is where government is streets ahead because they're mandated to do so, right? So briefing notes and so forth. You can really trace it, and uh, and that's where I got my got my start. You're asking about uh, oral evidence. Oral evidence is definitely has to be handled with care mm-hmm. because there are there are legacies involved. There is a relationship involved as well. So when you sit down with somebody, you know you have to make them comfortable. You have to kind of tease them out to what their career aspirations were and what their achievements were. And so you have to be you have to have a high kind of uh, emotional intelligence in order to in order to do that. I'm not claiming that for myself, but I'm just saying that would be the standard. And so when those things are amassed in terms of transcripts and so forth, then you start uh, comparing, you know, different versions of stories, because there are some that definitely have an axe to grind, right? Well, maybe a little one, you know, or they just have a different perspective from their particular point of view, even a disciplinary point of view. If you're a CFO, everything looks like a cost. You know, if you're an investment banker versus a, a regular banker, Investment bankers are very different. Uh, regular bankers, uh, corporate bankers are pretty cautious and so forth. So you have to f- kind of factor all of that in and make sure that you handle all of those things with care. That said, I don't think the, say, the last 30 years of the bank, you know, we, we could have written it the way we did uh, without it. Now, how does your history compare to Merrill Dennison's earlier two-volume history of the Bank of Montreal? And how does it compare to, for example, Duncan McDowell's history of the Royal Bank of Canada? Merrill Dennison's uh, history, Canada's first bank, uh, was in two volumes. It was started in 1955, and it ended in 1967. And this is something I kind of, you know, uh, teased my uh, BMO colleagues about a little bit because it took that long. It took 12 years, and we only took a much, much, uh, much shorter time with and not with eleven secretaries, okay. <laughs> you know, typing, uh, you know, typing in uh, in unison and so forth. Merrill's uh, history is a good history. Um, it is a potted history. It is a history by an amateur historian, and so we we realize the limitations of it. We also realize the the scale of his achievement. Okay, at the same time, even when it came out, it was kind of old-fashioned. It was also passed through the executive to say, look, okay, you know, we can deal with the CPR in almost real time. You know, this is what happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, up until the 1930s. And then it's like, it's very, very, let's say, cloudy as to what happened. Certain things happened, certain greatnesses were achieved, 
aren't we great? And it was actually very much a document of its time, perhaps like they'll say about our books as well. You were mentioning Duncan, uh, McDowell's, Duncan book. McDowell's book, Quick to the Frontier. Over a quarter century has passed since, since Duncan wrote that. Duncan is a pioneer in Canadian business history, and he's written so many excellent books, straightforward, that he has had monumental contribution to it. So it was in very much a, kind of a, a model for me to say, okay, this is the standard. How can I put my own personality with the kind of the tools I have and the expertise I have, you know, a quarter century later? But Duncan is, uh, apart from being a friend, he is, uh, he is a tremendous, you know, a tremendous scholar. And so uh, I think it's, uh, it's an excellent book. This one is a little bit, a little bit bigger, right? Uh, it's uh, two volumes. Uh, it's also uh, en français. But that was the standard to which I aspired, and I, you know, so it was it was a touchstone. Well, one of the areas where uh, I think you very much fall within that tradition is Duncan is of extremely good writer. Uh, he's very good at narrative, and the narrative in both of your volumes is uh, is is wonderful. It, it far surpasses the standard that we generally see. Thank you. And so I wanted to congratulate you on that. Now, how did the Bank of Montreal fare in the prosperous decades following the Second World War, at least until the OPEC oil crisis of 1973? And here I'm looking for how did it fare generally and how did it fare relative to its competitors in the Canadian market? If you look at the, uh, the annual reports in that period, if you look at charts without comparing, without comparing, you think, wow, they're growing. It's the home to 1 million Canadians in 1945 in terms of customers. Then in 1950, 51, 2 million. It goes into the advertising right away. Then 3 million customers. So things are growing. Things there's there's a lot of stuff that's happening that's good. But I call this period the kind of the magnificent facade, because it looks great. There's beautiful architecture. It's the you know it's the top bank or it has the this kind of reputational aura, but it's it's losing competitive advantage, left and right. It's not making the decisions it needs. It is much more of a kind of a country club. The conservatism that is natural born of the Bank of Montreal becomes, uh, when sensibly exercised is, uh, is a virtue, becomes a rigidity. It becomes a, uh, a problem. It, they kind of turn in on themselves. They're not renewing themselves. And, you know, people start in the early 60s starting to say, well, you know, maybe we are in trouble, especially when the Commerce Bank and the Imperial Bank get together Right, and they start saying, "Well, now we're we're not even number two anymore. We're number three. So they thought for a moment to kind of, how can we still be number two without doing so much, right? But then I think the penny dropped for some of the people, and they said, "Okay, well, we we've got to move," and they did so slowly because it was a it was a gilded cage. So. You know, there's this kind of hardening of the arteries that occurs in those years. But then the bank is reorganized in the 1960s. Can you tell us what happened, why the decision was made to reorganize the bank, and what were the actual consequences, if any, of this reorganization? The brutal fact, Greg, is that in the early 60s, the Bank of Montreal was becoming sclerotic. The blood wasn't flowing to the parts that should have. 
because that was increasingly, you know, the case because of aging systems of books that had been around for like 50 years, ledgers and so forth. So it is like backward technologically, increasingly. Here again, the facade is fantastic, right? But what is going on inside is that they're losing not only a march, but they're losing the, the general war against, uh, against its competitors. But it, then it starts to realize something. And when the going gets tough, the tough call McKinsey. Right. <laughs> right. And so they call McKinsey Consulting and uh, we was becoming uh, prominent at the time for their, um, you know, for their high priced advice. And they said, look, you've got to completely reorganize this thing. You've got to bring in people from universities, the special development program and so forth. And so that generation, what it did, it didn't work immediately, but technology underwent a transformation and also in terms of personnel. So that generation, you get the Matt Barretts and the Tony Compers that are starting to come into the bank that eventually lead the bank 30 or 25 years later. They're the young Turks who are actually starting to, you know, to make those changes. And so the blood is starting to flow again, right? Uh, still a lot of problems, still a lot of like systems. Banking can be kind of boring sometimes. There are millions and millions of interactions and contacts and, you know, and ledgers and so forth. But but you've really got to ride herd on it. You need to make it the least cost. You may need to make it the most efficient and so forth. And they were just not doing that at that time. They started to do it. They placed some pretty big bets, so much so that their technology by the mid-1970s was probably the best of any bank. You know, they kind of leapfrogged in some ways. So in your chapter on the period of the 1970s, the economic slowdown with the OPEC oil crisis, you talk about uh, Bill Mulholland as the savior general of the Bank of Montreal. Can you describe who this man was to us and how did he actually go about saving the Bank of Montreal? Bill Mulholland, W.D. Mulholland, William David Mulholland, Born in 1926 in Albany, New York, went through uh, uh, some, you know, pretty stringent private education, signed up with the Army, uh, in the United States Army. He needed his parents' permission since he was not, uh, not quite the age of majority yet. He saw action in the Philippines. And so I thought, yeah, he has that. And he also had a bearing as a, you know, as a, as a military man. You know, he was like always upright. His uh, personality, from all of the interviews I can, uh, I could dig up, and uh, all of the, all the press reports and so forth, just kind of indicated that he was of that kind of particular character. He was also one of the. Uh, he has a Harvard MBA in 1952, which is very rare at the time. Now it's you know a lot more common. Uh, yes. I don't know whether he mentioned the fact that he was a Harvard MBA every single day, like I think that they're required to do today. <laughs> but, uh, so he becomes, uh, he becomes very interested uh, through, um, you know, uh, in the 1960s, he is uh, a merchant banker, and then he gets involved in, uh, in, in Brinko, and uh, then eventually gets a seat on the, uh, on the Bank of Montreal board. And so he is seeing the slow rigidification of the Bank of Montreal, and he's also being very vociferous in the, you know, in the councils of the Bank of Montreal to say, you guys have got to change. You've got to do this, do that, etc. So eventually, he becomes uh, tipped to be president. 
this is not a person who has been in the Bank of Montreal. This is a very interesting, you know, because usually they promote from within. That's right. He was a real outsider. Yes, yeah, precisely, precisely. And so he began a huge transformation of the bank that needed it so desperately at the time because that they were, I wouldn't say they were collapsing. That would be an exaggeration, but they were, they were just kind of losing compression. And so they needed a kind of some shock therapy. And I think this is what Bill Mulholland did for the bank. You know, not always, you know, some of the projects were rolled back after he left. For example, the separation of personal and commercial banking, which was probably necessary at the time, but created a lot of churn and a lot of uh, problems within the organization. Then he launched into international banking, into sovereign debt, you know, where that led as well, their dome petroleum and so forth. But he, if you'll forgive the phrase, he made Bank of Montreal great again. Now, we, we think of the Bank of Montreal, at least Canadians, we think of it as a Canadian bank, but it's also very much an international bank. And can you describe the evolution of these international operations and the role maybe that Bill Mulholland and his successors played and also, what was the Bank of Montreal doing when it acquired the uh, Harris Bank of Chicago? It seemed to be a bit of a different approach to international expansion than some of the other banks. So just describe what was going on here and the impact that this had on the Bank of Montreal. In the post-war, they start searching for markets outside of Canada. Now, Canada's a growth market for, let's say, you know, but up until the 1960s. But then they start seeing opportunities to uh, to make money and to, to expand branches profitably in the Caribbean. Also, uh, you know, they're the first glimmerings of, uh, of entering China as well. So uh, the chief executive officer, Arnold Hart, at the time, makes that first voyage to, uh, to China. And, of course, he's besotted. And then it becomes a standard kind of envelope essentially that is passed from CEO to CEO to say make sure you take care of China China's the next big you know the next big thing and so forth there are also operations in the in other parts of the Caribbean through uh, joint ventures like the uh, the Bank of London and Montreal the Bank of London in South America becomes the Bank of London and Montreal and so forth so there are all kinds of little stories that pop up in the 1950s and then end in 1970 there is um, the entry into into Mexico. Now, they entered Mexico in 1910 and then in, got out in the 1930s, and then they came back in the 1960s and so forth. So they're not as an as international a bank as, as the Bank of Nova Scotia, for example, which kind of stayed in, in a, a lot of these areas. But uh, they did also, they did get involved in a lot of sovereign debt, a lot of uh, especially uh, Mexico debt and uh, and also Brazil. Brazil was uh, was very important too. And so what was with the Harris Bank? What was all that about? Right, right, of course, the Harris Bank. This is the single greatest strategic move of the half century, probably of the entire century for, for Bill Mulholland. You know, you could excuse the, the fact that he, you know, he made uh, people wait sometimes for 10 hours for a meeting. You imagine it's inconceivable today. Perhaps, but but it, it, it was like he was he was an old style bank chair. He was the last of the great red hot bank chairman, right? Uh, and he looked it. I mean, he also had I think a wicked sense of humor, but he had a sense of the institution as well. So he decides that Harris is up, you know, might be up for sale. 
And so he buys it for $625 million, something like that. The Canadian press goes bananas. They say, well, my God, you know, this is way too much. Are you buying what for how much? But it ended up being a beachhead for the transformation of the bank into a North American, essentially a North American bank, right? And so it is a very precious part of it. Now, they didn't do very much with it at the, at the beginning, but eventually Chicago and Toronto are the kind of essentially the two poles apart from Montreal, of course, for historic reasons, but it's Chicago and Toronto that are the alpha and omega right now of, uh, of the bank. So I call it the day the universe changed because it changed forever the, uh, the trajectory of the bank and they did it better than anybody else. You regularly use history uh, to inform the present. So what would be the one key contemporary lesson that you would draw from the post-war history of the Bank of Montreal, either in terms of management in the present and the future or in terms of policy? There are lots to choose from, I'd say, from markets and competition to how to deal with uh, technological transformation and change. We just talked just now about expansion into markets, when to draw your horns in and when to actually, uh, you know, when to attack. Mergers and acquisitions, I would say, that is probably the most important. So understanding those lessons. It's not just the lessons to say, well, when the time is right, buy something. When you've got the money, buy something. Well, you know, I'm not sure that that is, uh, that is very helpful for, you know, contemporary policymakers or decision makers. But uh, if you dig a little bit deeper, you say, how did this happen? Not just why, but how. Example, you buy Harris, and what do you do to kind of integrate the cultures? Because there was a real problem. At the beginning, Mulholland said, don't touch Harris, right, for a number of years. That might have been good for a couple of years, but these synergies that come with, you know, actually integrating the two, you right. know, the two banks are are very important. That by that time, seven, eight years later, it was much more difficult. They would also send down people, you know, to Chicago who would never come back because Chicago is fantastic, right? And then they, they kind of go native in some ways. So they have to kind of meet somewhere in the middle. So there's uh, many lessons to be learned, I think, in terms of mergers and acquisition. I would say the, the overall idea is that balance between dynamism and form. Because the forms sometimes are disguised. They could be uh, sclerotic communications, or they could be in lines of business. And so I would say that there are many lessons, but I would say that the, those, are the, those are the main ones. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thank you very much, Greg. My guest today was Lawrence Muzio. We talked about his book, When Fortune Favors, in particular, his volume two, Territories of Transformation, 1946 to 2017, The History of the Bank of Montreal, that was released this year by McGill Queen's University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of Documentary History in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. 
My name is Greg Marshallden, and this podcast was recorded at Ryerson University on March 11, 2020. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. We look forward to you joining us again.